0: Hello, Dr. Lisa. Um, I am Carol Liu from the iGEM team at ASU.
1: Hi, I'm Avery. I'm the
0: Queen's representative from Queen's University QGEM. And we're really excited to have you on our podcast. And so we know that you are currently researching um, bio-risk, and you've had experience with arsenic decontamination in water in the past. And so our projects are focused on genetically engineering um, different organisms to fix water quality issues in the environment. So we just had a couple of questions for you. just in your background in assessing bio-risk, is there a framework that exists to determine what potential risks accompany new biotechnologies? Could you describe them?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, I would start by asking yourself, really what level are you talking about and what kinds of risk are you talking about? Because on the very basic level, maybe maybe the level that we all reach for instinctively? Yes, there are absolutely frameworks in terms of risk assessment and regulation. There are reams and reams of regulation to do with genetically modified organisms um, from the 70s and 80s onwards. So this is not an under-regulated field as even though some detractors say that there is no synthetic biology regulation. There is, it just isn't called synthetic biology regulation. It's called the regulation of biological organisms, of genetically modified organisms, living modified organisms. So the terminology is different, but a lot of it applies to synthetic biology as well. And those types of frameworks generally work on assessing the risk that comes from engineering or modifying the organism that you're working with, or in the case of um, other types of constructs, it doesn't necessarily mean an organism, but any of the biological work that you're doing, it means assessing that. And it's assessing that on criteria that usually have to do with safety for the person working with the organism and for the world at large. So that generally is framed in terms of the environment or other species that might be in the environment that might compete with the thing that you've made in the lab. So those are really the the fundamental sort of obvious frameworks that we use to assess risk in synthetic biology. Now you can zoom out, and I think this is what the iGEM human practices work is really quite good at trying to get people to do is zooming out and trying to think about other frameworks to do with not just risk but impacts more broadly. So the question that I often like to ask is if my synthetic biology product works or doesn't work or just happen you know if 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 I what how does I I phrase that poorly we can edit this right. Um, (laughs) If my synthetic biology product or project happens, how does the world look different? What are the impacts going to be? So that can be, for example, um, you're creating something to look at water quality, but what does it mean for that particular community to be aware of the water quality? Does that pose risks? Does that only pose benefits? How can you make sure that it's appropriately done in a way that suits the users and the communities that you're working with? Because that's a much fuzzier concept, the frameworks aren't as, well, they're not legally enshrined in the way that GM regulations often are. Instead, you'll get frameworks that have to do with something called responsible research and innovation, usually. And these are usually adopted on a voluntary basis, though some funding agencies will require you to adhere to them if you know if you want to get money from them. Uh, so for instance, the the Engineering Physical Sciences Research Council in the UK has a particular framework um, that they like to use to to try and get their their scientists, their engineers to do responsible research and innovation and it's called the AREA framework. And that takes you to different different, um, phases of thinking in your project. And that has to do with anticipation, uh, reflection, engagement, and action. And so you really think through the impacts of your project, your synthetic biology project for, for our purposes, and then see what, what's going to come out of that. Is that, is that OK?
1: Oh, that's, that's a great answer. Thank you so much. Um, so kind of in the same realm of thought process, obviously, as you know, synthetic biology is a rapidly growing field, and a lot of research is being done to apply this new field to science to solve many different types of problems. Do you believe there's currently enough emphasis being placed on risk assessment and management in synthetic biology?
2: That's a really hard question, because um, simultaneously you have people who are deeply worried about synthetic biology, often because it's new. Uh, On the other hand, you have this transformative potential that you just talked about being spoken about as though it's going to solve all of our problems it's going to solve all of our grand challenges and so those things are intention because rightly or wrongly there's an assumption that more oversight or more governance will lead to less innovation now I don't necessarily think that's true um, I think that oversight and oversight can actually be of great use to innovation because it sets the parameters for doing things properly for doing things well so I think as if you if you don't fall into the trap of thinking of governance and oversight as being negative pressures, then I think you can only do better with more. Now, I think when we talk about the risks of synthetic biology, there's, I think, quite a lot of emphasis placed on the, I want to call them the physical risks, maybe that's not the right word, but the risks of my specific bug that I'm engineering in my lab and what's it going to do rather than the risks of, I'm building something that fits into a wider system and those systems are networked. And someone in some other lab might be building something that interacts or I interact with a political system, with a cultural system. Those risks are not yet studied very well. And they're, as, because of that, they're not really very well understood. So I think those could be paid more attention to. We talk about synthetic biology as being transformative, we don't often think about, well, how? Like, what is actually going to be transformed?
0: Thank you for uh, just highlighting the point that a lot of this is network oriented and there's interactions uh, between different organisms. So uh, as part of your research, have you seen any examples of people who have assessed like networks well? or just have you personally uh, engineered or helped advise people who are engineering um, an organism that would fit into the environment as a system rather than just be sequestered in an individual area?
2: Um, yes and no. Uh, sorry, none of my answers are very um, direct. I'm afraid. So in maybe. I guess we'll come to talk about the arsenic biosensor a little bit later. So first I'll talk about a different class of risk altogether where networked risks make a huge difference. And that's what my current job is. I'm a postdoc at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk which looks at large scale catastrophic uh, impacts usually stemming from human activity or human technologies. And so there, quite a few of us think about systemic risk and network risks. Uh, a colleague of mine recently published a paper on pinch points, you know, critical points in global infrastructure that would have huge consequences if they were knocked out for, for one reason or another. In her paper, she was talking about volcanoes, but it could be other types of, of hazard as well. And so that really gives a flavor of how all of these risks fit together and, not quite as neatly as dominoes, but a domino-like effect could could ensue. Um, But more relevant to what I've done, thinking about risks that pertain to networks and maybe ecosystems is a better word, was the work that I did with the arsenic biosensor. So for the podcast, do you wanna ask me a separate question about that or should I just jump into it or?
1: I'll I'll ask the question, just we have the little audio clip, (laughs) Um, but you are you're very smart. That is where we're going with this. So (laughs) uh, can you tell us a bit more about the arsenic biosensor project you've previously worked on?
2: Sure, I'd love to. It's a project that was very dear to my heart, actually, and I spent some really amazing years working on it. So you may already know um, it was a project that came out of two iGEM teams. Uh, one from Edinburgh and one from Cambridge. The Edinburgh Edinburgh team developed a way to sense arsenic and uh, get E. coli to change pH in the presence of different concentrations of arsenic. The Cambridge team uh, developed E. chromi, which were bacteria that changed color based on different types of input. So the idea behind the arsenic biosensor was to put these two elements together and engineer bacteria who would visibly change color in response to different concentrations of arsenic. And this was... The idea was to develop this as prototype to use to detect different levels of arsenic in well water, which is a huge health problem, a huge public health problem, especially in parts of South Asia. Um, and there, a a large proportion of wells are contaminated with arsenic. And one of the big problems there is that there's no reliable, cheap and safe way to even know what the levels, what the concentrations of arsenic are in your well. So I was in um, the lab when that project was beginning. So this combination project, putting those two iGEM projects together. In the post iGEM world, um, the supervisor of that project the supervisors were able to obtain money from the Wellcome Trust to pursue this as a a post-iGEM project. And I became interested in this question of what does it look like when the synthetic biology project goes out into the world? This prototype goes out and meets the real world. And that was really interesting to me because it involved a whole lot of questions about regulations to begin with. We are, after all, thinking about taking a genetically modified organism out of the lab into, let's say, a rural village in Nepal and using that, using it there, not in a lab. What does that mean in terms of regulations? But also, what does it mean in terms of the societal and cultural norms and mores that exist there? What does it mean to suddenly be able to test your water for arsenic and see what the concentration is? How do you do that when there's an environment as i said before an ecosystem of all kinds of stakeholders who are already interested in water sanitation and water quality and hygiene and how do you put all of those moving parts together and make sure that this one engineered bug actually does something useful rather than being a shiny distraction Um, that's that's wonderful Um,
0: yeah, I think that's super fascinating. Um, and as you mentioned, your arsenic biosensor, it indicated the presence of arsenic in water, but uh, it didn't clean it out, but didn't directly intervene in terms of remediating the water. But we wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on using synthetic biology to remediate water or to filter water of the contaminants such as arsenic?
2: So I'm not going to speak to the technical aspects of that because I I don't think that's why you're interviewing me necessarily. Um, but I think that's a really interesting idea. One is that, OK, I will get a little bit technical. One of the reasons why using biology to do anything with arsenic is quite handy is because, to put it very crudely, the, the properties that make arsenic toxic to human beings are also the properties that make arsenic toxic to other organisms. So you have the right receptors and promoters and all the, all the kind of machinery that you need. So that makes a biologically based solution very attractive because you can distinguish between the different forms of arsenic that, um, that exist in these wells. But when it comes to actually deploying that in communities where arsenic is a problem, first, I think there is a big regulatory challenge. And it's a regulatory challenge that we came across as well with the arsenic biosensor, but I think it would be redoubled with something like a bio-based filter, especially if I think you're talking about using live bacteria um, out in the field in a filter. So that you immediately run into issues of what is containment when it comes to a bacterium. By of course, there's biological containment. There might also be physical containment and different legislatures might see those things differently. And I, frankly, I don't think that there's actually any really good consensus on what containment actually means because containment has traditionally only really been framed as, frankly, a building or a structure rather than a box or even a membrane or something like that. So I think that the regulatory side has some catching up to do when it comes to taking synthetic biology products out and using them in their sort of live state. Um, But on a more sort of practical, like tangible level, one of the big lessons from the arsenic biosensor and generally from thinking a lot more about science and technology studies over the years is this idea of a technical fix, of a technological fix. Sometimes, you know, it's called like the, the silver bullet or something, you know, like if only we could develop a filter, then everybody would be drinking clean water, that's great. That's unfortunately not how it works, really. So we, when we were in Nepal, we saw um, a previous academic group had gone to some of the same villages that we went to, developing a filter that was using really cheap, really in- innovative, very cheap, very um, and very effective as well using rusty nails and powdered bricks in a big tub and you know that's it was a very effective filter because you know you can get some chelation reactions that will remove the arsenic for you Um, there was a great deal of promise for that approach but speaking to people there it sounded like there were some problems along the way one was just a very simple like design consideration if you have this big filter that is housed in a in a garbage bin-like container, are people really going to want to put it in their house? You know, it seems dumb, because you, know, you just want the, cheapest, you want the cheapest filter to be able to, to give it to as many people as possible. But, you know, do I want to drink water out of something that looks like a garbage can? I don't think so. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing that, that you do have to think about, because these are technologies, but they're technologies that are being thought about for use in human contexts. And I think it's a mistake to think that, oh, well, these poor people should be grateful for whatever technology we can give them, no matter how unsuitable it is. I think that's not, not a correct attitude. So I think that that, that was overcome. You know, the, the filters were redesigned and they were much more attractively uh, packaged. But then another problem was aftercare. Like we visited some households where people didn't really know whether their filters worked anymore. Um, because it had been months or years since they'd received them. Some bits had maybe broken, but they weren't sure if it still worked. They were still kind of using it, but not sure whether it was really doing its thing. And I think that's, this is not like, I, I really absolutely don't want to fault the team that made these filters because it it's a great product. But that's the problem with these sort of philanthropic endeavors often and these silver bullet type endeavors. You can't just like put in the technology and then walk away. You have to make sure that it's integrated within local infrastructure and being used with local customs or local um, local norms and ideologies in mind. So I think those are, and, and frankly, that really doesn't have anything to do with synthetic biology. It's more about developing your project or your product that happens to be synthetic biology and making sure that it's effective.
1: Yeah, that's a really um, interesting point you made because uh, just to give like kind of a very simple overview, the Queen's team this year is building a water filter that can also detect whether bacteria is in the water because bacterial contaminants are really um, popular in the water of our Indigenous communities in Canada. Um, And we spoke to Indigenous leaders, they said there have been a million people who come into our communities with quote-unquote solutions, but Either the technology is too difficult that the people in the communities can't use it or it breaks, they don't know who to call. And so I think considering who is in the community, who's actually using it is a big part of
2: developing a product like that. Absolutely, yeah. I'm so I'm so glad you've had those conversations and I'm glad that the responses that you got mirror the, the experiences that I've had because I think it's it's very easy to design an app or design some gizmo. Not actually think about whether who's going to be using it, and in one sense, this is just it's a bit silly because, frankly, isn't this just like marketing 101? But (laughs) when it comes to you know technologies to address global challenges, we don't think in that mindset somehow,
1: yeah. Like, for instance, we we
2: in terms of responsibility, but we frame it in terms of responsibility, but it's also just effectiveness,
1: yeah, for sure. Like, we were we, our device has to be heated. So at one point we're like, oh, we'll just plug it in. And then we're like, well, not every community just has a nice outlet in their house. That's going to work hundred percent of the time. Maybe let's use batteries because, you know, we know that they're, they can go to a store in their community and get batteries, like simple things like that, that you don't commonly think of in your day-to-day life.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And something like water is also so almost emotionally charged. It's such a crucial part of all human society that it has this this weird sort of currency as well. So in the arsenic case, um, about a decade, maybe a little bit longer ago, there was a mass testing campaign using um, laboratory tests, not portable um, biosensors or portable sensors of any kind. Um, And one of the outcomes of that large-scale survey was to paint wells green or red depending on whether there was was arsenic or there was not arsenic now what they found was that in some cases having a red well in your village or in your area of the village actually caused an increase of stigma because it was seen as unclean or it was just seen as diseased and it was just not acceptable and I've heard reports of people repainting the well the red wells into green because stigma was worse than this disease that wouldn't manifest for 20 years and that i think becomes i mean that's in part because water has such a key role to play in society and that role that importance is universal but the actual role that it's that it plays in organizing communities organizing societies is different in different parts of the world
1: Yeah it's really interesting that you mentioned the emotional side because for us like um, many of the Indigenous cultures in Canada water is part of their like religious and spiritual like um, I don't know how to use the proper word like part of their religion and their spiritual experience so when the water was making them sick that was affecting you know their mental health because for them that's an important part of not just physical life but other aspects and for that to then hurt them kind of causes a bad relationship in that sense
2: absolutely it's a it's a disconnect between what they've believed for eons yeah yeah
0: and that like all of this is human-centered design and that's what we're trying to do in reaching out um in terms of learning about how do we think about risk frameworks and how do we think about just ethical considerations and cultural considerations in terms of biological research. Uh, but shifting a little bit away from maybe the personal and cultural side, how do you suggest that companies and research groups in the future like approach responsible research when working on uh, biological engineering projects, both scientific and social in nature.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question and also a really hard question because we're still in the process of figuring that out. Um, again, on one level, when it comes to regulations, which have this, you know, this narrow definition of safety, those have not caught up with what we're able to do with synthetic biology, even. So even if you wanted to abide by the letter of the law, in many cases, the technology is a little bit ahead of the law or a lot ahead of the law. And so even if you had the best intentions of following every rule, you couldn't because the the rules don't really exist yet. So I think one thing is um, companies and industry groups can work with regulators and legislators to try and develop forward-facing future-proof or at least future-flexible legislation that doesn't get caught up with the next, uh, the next CRISPR, for example. So that's one thing that um, companies can do concretely. Then it's also about, I think, internal practice and community practice of companies themselves. So thinking quite carefully about that question that I asked at the beginning, like how, is the world different if my product makes it out into, into the world? And I think that can be the case whether you're looking at biofuels or remediation or sensors or vaccines or anything like that. And that has multi dimensional as well, especially for something that, Frank, that despite everything we've talked about that does have tech at its center, there are lots of different frameworks to do with tech, things like intellectual property. So how am I going to apply different right, different IPR rights to my synthetic biology product? That's going to dictate how it's used, by whom it's used, and for whom it's used. Sorry, and for what purpose it's used. That's an important steering mechanism that companies, individuals and companies, make decisions about very early on. But those decisions have very long impacts and very long societal impacts as well. So thinking carefully about those kinds of things is was um crucial at at the earliest stages, I think. So thinking about this multi-dimensionally I think is really important and not just my product, my impact but our community's impact on the future. All right thank you so much <laughs> No
0: thank you so much that's definitely um just these questions to ask ourselves really, I think, makes up the core of how you approach um, research, really. Uh, and thank you for answering
2: that. I'm not sure that I did answer it, but <laughs> I gave it a go. Because <laughs> that, that's the other thing. I mean, i worked on the arsenic biosensor, but that was, it was kind of semi-academic in nature. You know, we were tasked with developing a prototype that could then become a commercial product. But it was never a company that i worked in so the motivations the the influences are rather different so i'm saying what i would like to see from synthetic biology companies but the same is true for any kind of synthetic biology actor is to just be thoughtful yeah
1: that... no, of course that's I think that's the um, whole question list we have for you. If there's anything else you wanna touch upon or ask us or anything like that, um, feel free. But if not, I think that's that's the end of it. <laughs> uh,
2: I realized I didn't talk much about like the synbio part of the arsenic biosensor. Did you want me to? Understand? There's something there about like how of the designs, the biological designs changed based on uh, stakeholder engagement and stuff like that. I don't know if you wanted me to go into that. Sure, yeah. Uh, Yeah. How how does synthetic
0: biology specifically work into um, creating something such as the arsenic biosensor?
2: So what was really interesting about the arsenic biosensor experience for me was seeing firsthand how engagement with the various stakeholders actually had a tangible impact and really fundamentally changed some parts of the synthetic biology that was being developed. So for example, very early designs of the biosensor had color gradients as an output that went in different steps based on the concentration of arsenic. But after speaking to stakeholders, that was one thing that was unacceptable to them because it was too ambiguous, too difficult to read, especially when you're outside in bright sunlight. It's really difficult to distinguish very, very pale from moderately pale. And using those judgments to determine the quality of your water is a little bit tricky. So instead, um, the synthetic biologists in the lab had to devise a sort of traffic light system that was much more on-off And for them, that meant engineering three or four more different bacterial strains than before. So talking to stakeholders had a real impact on the biological design. So it's not just window dressing that you do at the end of the project. It's better to do that stakeholder engagement early on because you don't know how it's going to impact your your work, even fundamentally at the bench. That's one example. I think I'm just trying, there was another example that I sometimes use, but I can't remember it right now. Oh yeah, actually, this might be relevant to your project as well. I mean, well, it's not not super relevant. Another piece of very useful input that we got from stakeholders was, again, about seeing our arsenic biosensor as part of a wider ecosystem of issues to do with water safety, water quality, and hygiene. So in the regions of Nepal that we were working, there were two big fears to do with water. One is arsenic, the other are coliform bacteria. So, you know, one is going to kill you in the next couple of days, the other is going to kill you in 20 years. But you want to know about both of them. So one very useful bit of stakeholder engagement that we did was to incorporate a coliform detector within our arsenic biosensor. So you essentially get two tests for the price of one in one single device. So we wouldn't have known that had we not spoken to people who worked with communities and who did coliform tests all the time. That has the added advantage that many people in these communities were used to seeing or even using these coliform tests themselves. So then the concept of testing water using a handheld device is not alien. It's something that we can build on and gain trust through. Now, of course, and I don't know whether you'll have come across this in your work on filtering, but when you're testing for coliform bacteria, one of the ways that you do that is by amplifying those bacteria in a particular device. And I don't know, I mean, amplifying a ton of potentially um, pathogenic bacteria in a small device, or maybe collecting a ton of pathogenic bacteria in a filter, it brings with it some biosafety concerns that you need to think about. So, I guess where I'm going with this is that stakeholder engagement really informed, is crucial to inform the direction of the project, but there are also other parameters that are to do with synthetic biology and just biology and the life sciences in general that you need to keep in mind and put all those puzzles together.
0: Yeah, definitely. Actually, when you mentioned the fact that the sensor itself can sometimes um, use a mechanism that, could introduce harm into a system. I was thinking about our project, so we're actually using um, algae, Chlamydomonas like reinhardari, uh, in order to sequester arsenite. So there's like mm-hmm. a protein in the in the algae itself that naturally will bind to arsenite, but in order to do that, we're introducing um, a gene that allows arsenate to be reduced into arsenite, but well, arsenite actually, the more toxic form. So yeah. when I first saw that, I was like, isn't that the opposite of what we want to do? Like make it, are we making it more toxic in order to <laughs> remove it from the water? Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a good consideration. Uh,
2: I'm really and fascinated. Yeah. may not be deal breakers, you know, <laughs> it might be that in this particular setup, that's not a concern. But thinking through those different steps, thinking about, okay, so what happens to this filter after it's being used? What happens to all that arsenite? I think that's a really useful exercise that might make, that might make or break whether whether it's acceptable or not.
0: Absolutely. again, thinking about the whole system. Um, yeah. But you mentioned in, in a sense that like water is used for multiple things, like in the Nepal community, but in all of our communities. Um, it is so like, so many contexts. So do you think that there are different levels of um, risk that should be applied to different water use, like for feeding livestock versus for drinking water for humans? I know that there's like different regulations, uh, but in terms of when we consider our design, like, is it allowable to... Um, make potentially less safe designs if we're saying, oh, we're not going to be interacting with drinking water for humans specifically, but just pushing the problem further up the line.
2: I think on the whole, as long as you're clear about what your intervention does and does not do, I think that's the most important thing. there is a risk, of course, that people see an intervention and assume it's taking care of whatever problem there is, even though it's not actually the gold standard, let's say. It's just good enough for this particular application. But I think if you're clear in your communications, that's probably okay. So for example, when with the arsenic biosensor, we, one of the parts of the project again, that came from stakeholder engagement was that people really would like the biosensor to be integrated with some sort of smartphone app so that they could map the wells around all of Nepal ideally to say which ones had high, medium, low levels of arsenic. So I already talked a little bit about stigma and how that might be problematic on an individual level, but at the sort of state level or the governmental level, that actually becomes extremely useful because then they can develop policy to target different interventions to large, large-scale interventions like, okay, well, this community, it's all red, so they need piped water. Whereas this community is mostly green with a little bit of yellow, and you know, we, can, we can sort that out with filters. Or at the, at the sort of smaller community level, you can do that same sort of um, almost like triage, like that well that has a lot of arsenic in it, we only use that for washing our clothes. Whereas this is the well that we use for cooking. And you can make those kinds of decisions with that kind of information. So I think it's about being clear at what level you're operating and what your intervention actually does. And if you you are clear about that, I think that you can um, avoid doing more harm than good, frankly. All right. Thank you. That's fascinating.
0: Again, we just wanted to uh, thank you for participating in this podcast.